Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Kemi Sharia. And I'm Monica Ainley. And you're listening to Fashion No Filter, where we sit down with some of the lead creatives, strategic thinkers, and emerging talent around us to interpret the ins and outs of the fashion industry today. For the last installment of Fashion No Filter, before we have a little break until 2018, we decided to tackle the elephant in the room, sustainability in fashion. We've been biding our time for this one, even though we started getting requests for it since we first launched Fashion No Filter, which I think is a great sign, by the way, as it means that our listeners really care about this super important topic. But just to set the record straight before we get into this difficult topic, obviously, because we're talking about the end of the world as we know it, <laughs> uh, we just want to say we are not experts. On the contrary, we in our own lives are very far from perfect on this subject, we are not here to point fingers or take down any brands or capitalism itself, for that matter. But to start a fire and get a bit of a conversation really flowing here. Yeah, it's so important that we take this seriously, even though on an individual level, it can be a little bit daunting sometimes. So, coming up on the show, we interviewed inspiring environmental activists Lucy Siegel and Cyril Gouch. Plus, we sit down with Kathleen Talbot, the woman who is head of sustainability at one of our favorite brands, Reformation, a brand that works so hard at maintaining an eco-friendly approach to design. And all your regular segments, of course, including risk takers, social media break, and a very special installment of Dressed for Radio. Stay tuned. So unless you've been living under a rock for the last 10 years, it's impossible to ignore the environmental issues that we face today. Climate change, unfortunately, is one of the biggest threats that we face as a species. And, well, let's be honest, it's not like we're making changes very fast, despite all the warnings we've been getting from the scientific community. Unfortunately, the issue is so big, it sort of goes above our heads. We almost can't compute something so terrible happening to us and our planet. Because if it were true, then... What is the meaning of existence? Okay, that seems like a super existential debate. But is it really? Basically, everything we as humans love to do is somehow bad for the planet. I mean, everything that really separates us from animals. After all, we wouldn't be human if we didn't create art, express ourselves via our clothes, travel to expand our minds, etc. So the root of the problem is also what defines us. Which is what makes this such a tricky issue to tackle. And we know that the fashion industry is the second biggest polluter in the world. 
second only to oil. It relies on constant turnover with brands producing more and more collections every year and new brands constantly popping up. And yeah, we're part of this industry, an industry whose aim it is to cultivate constant consumerism. Exactly. It's not that you can't enjoy fashion and make purchases. That's not what we're saying. It's about educating yourself so that you can know which purchases are the responsible ones to make. Being an environmentalist at our individual amateurish level means getting informed and choosing your priorities. And even though fashion is, of course, a big part of the problem, it can also be a vehicle for change. So bear with us, dear listeners. This is food for thought towards making more sustainable and environmentally friendly decisions going forward. We'll touch on the fashion supply chain, the true cost of fashion, sustainable fabric sourcing, and my favourite topic, the warm plastic. First up on this episode, I'm sitting at home with Lucy Siegel, who is a journalist, author and broadcaster who focuses on environmental, human and social issues in fashion. She is a spokesperson for ethical consumption and her book To Die For is Fashion Wearing Out the World is a real wake up call, as is the 2015 documentary that she co-produced and contributed to The True Cost. It's on Netflix, so you can all watch it over Christmas. Lucy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. What a pleasure. <laughs> Delighted. <laughs> let's, not, let's not beat about the bush um, and get into it immediately. For all the fashion and joy it brings to people, fashion has a huge social and environmental impact on the world. Could we start perhaps using your expertise by setting the scene? Could you explain to our listeners the extent of the damage that is caused by fashion? Yes. I mean, you look at any consumer goods. So we're drinking tea at the moment. That tea bag, although it's the most woke tea bag that anyone has ever found, I'm convinced about that. It has got a footprint, an environmental footprint. If you think about every product you see has a rucksack of all the stuff that went into making the product. So that's what we call the environmental burden, if you like. When it comes to fashion, you can times that by a factor of 10 or 20 because the statistics become enormous. So it takes thousands and thousands of litres to produce the cotton that needs to be spun into an average T-shirt or a pair of jeans. And then you have all the oil and all the water and all the other chemicals and additives that are used within that process, for example. If you're talking about synthetic fibre, that's obviously from oil. Oil. We know that oil has a huge impact, a geopolitical impact. You know, let's face it, wars start because of oil yeah. and the need for oil. Then you have to look at the other end of the chain. It doesn't biodegrade. It'll be with us forever. So there's all of these different impacts, which we have started to get quite good at actually quantifying those impacts. So we know particularly the items that tend to have the biggest impact and where they are. And what we've also started to understand is how we as consumers can lessen our impact. For example, there was a huge campaign a few years ago about washing your clothes mm. at 30 and no higher because for some reason in this country in the UK we have to boil wash everything which is insane because it ruins your clothes and is completely unnecessary anyway I digress so you see all of this impact comes together in one garment and then we have the human impact as well and we know that this is critical and we know that it is far too high so if we look at Rana Plaza disaster of 2013 when 1,133 people died making clothes for western brands 
just normal yeah. garments. You know, that was the biggest industrial accident ever. It's on our watch in our industry. Mm. Why did it happen? They weren't making landmines. This is not an unsafe job, but it has become an unsafe job. So what I'm saying in short is that the environmental and human impact of fashion is insane. So tell us about your experience writing and researching To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing Out the World? What made you want to write it? In fact, I didn't want to write it. I think I'd taken a long time. So I was already writing about consumerism, ethical living, and I'd gone through every little bit of my life. So I talked about food. I'd even talked about, you know, what fabric my bedding was made of. And then I realised I had to confront my wardrobe crisis. And it was a crisis, believe me. It was like, you know, clothes stuffed everywhere, changing outfits several times a day, you know, a real fast fashion habit that I had built up over my 20s, really. So I reluctantly came to write it. And it took me a long time. It took me three and a half years, possibly because I had to confront my own demons. And also because I had to do a lot of research from base. Uh, now we have a lot more reports and a lot more understanding, but a lot of that hadn't been done. So a lot of it was primary interviews of people in the field, people in laboratories who look through a microscope and tell you how much cashmere is actually in your cashmere cardigan often not very much. Yeah. And I was having to accumulate all this information and try and turn it into something. So sort of looking at the bigger picture, do you think that sustainable fashion is actually achievable? I think we could have a radically different fashion industry. And I find that a really exciting statement as it's coming out of my mouth. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, we could, we could, we could. And I think that it wouldn't look very much like the industry that we have now. So I suppose that's a slightly different framing of your question. Is sustainable fashion possible yeah. within the system that we have today? Absolutely not. And we are starting to get to that point when we know that the little tweaks that are being made and the little crumbs of comfort that are being thrown out to people like me are not enough. We need a radical shift in performance yeah. in terms of how much fashion we get for all the resources we use. We need a shift in responsibility and we need a lot more investment in a different type of supply chain. But are we going to have clothes? We'll always have clothes. Well, you say this. <laughs> for the foreseeable future, would we like those clothes to have an aesthetic value? Yes, I'd say that culturally that's yeah. pretty significant and important to us. Yeah. So there will be some fashion, but it needs to get a massive move on. I want to ask about these crumbs because the fashion industry seems like it's making progress. You see mm. ethical labels, conscious collections, sustainable eco brands popping up around us the whole time, including derivative lines from our favorite fast fashion mm. brands. How do we separate the real movers and shakers from, mm. from the PR fads, basically, is mm. what I'm asking. Mm, it's a good question. It's something that I've been trying to do for a long time. I think that there is some stuff that we should be excited about, for sure. So I think one of the things that if you look, I, I'm from um, an ecology background, not a fashion background. And if I look at an ecosystem, how do I know it's healthy? Well, the more biodiversity it has, the more flora and fauna species, the healthier it's going to be because it will be more resilient. The same is true in fashion. So it's not actually a bad thing that we're seeing more and more labels being born today. The labels that are being born today with a sustainable ethos and value system, and some of them are pretty entrenched 
which is really, really admirable because it's hard. It's really, really tough. And it's still not easier enough for them. There's still not a clear advantage mm-hmm. or any advantage as a disadvantage still, which we have got to work on. So we're seeing people come with these values and these ideas, whether it be zero waste pattern cutting or using something that people have previously seen as a waste product or paying living wage and forming proper solid relationships within your supply base. These are all very good ideas because they're very, very resilient for the future. But what we're lacking at the moment is the infrastructure to support incubation of these type of businesses. Yeah. You know, for I personally would love to see a VAT break or something like that, yes, something really radical for, for, for designers yeah. who tick those sort of boxes. So that's really, really helpful. We're also seeing some really kind of what you might term futuristic players enter the field. So modern meadows, for example, biofabricating leather without livestock in a laboratory, opening their first premises in New Jersey where they're employing 200 people. That's incredibly exciting. exciting. I mean, what a game changer, you know, bolt fabrics, brewing fabrics in a laboratory. So we're taking a lot of the environmental impact out. Probably, we don't know for sure, by the way, but that's a very interesting measure. And that also tells us something about the designers of the future, they're going to have to get ready to work alongside technicians and scientists and laboratories. So if you're not interested in science, is fashion the right place for you in the future? Mm. There's a whole shift in fashion education. And then by comparison, when I look at some of the crumbs, as I put it, fast fashion crumbs, fast fashion crumbs, I don't know. Does that seem as exciting? I mean, you know, I think one of the things that I've had an issue with in the past, which is kind of well known, particularly by those brands, is I don't like overclaiming. So I see, you know, the the figures that are offered up for a recycling week. And I think the consumer very definitely gets the impression that if they take their old clothes back to store, they'll be recycled into new ones. When actually we know technically we're a fair way down the road from that at the moment. So I think we have to be careful about overclaiming. And also without getting into the deep of it, as I do in To Die For, which many students have to read that chapter, I'm sure they they roll their eyes, but we get into the real problem about this system as it is at the moment and the dysfunction between the buyers and the factory owners and when that order is placed. So my problem is that within that context, everyone is being set up to fail because we know from the money that's being paid, we know from the system and the way it worked and the amount of pieces that they expect to be produced in a very short time that the garment worker cannot earn a decent wage in the right conditions. So until we fix that, we have a broken system and you can't just add green bits onto a broken system. Yeah. If it, you've got to, you've got to work on the core. I'm sure it's like Pilates or whatever. You have to work on the core. <laughs> I'm very bad at Pilates, but I am working on my core. Me too. We all need to work on our core. <laughs> but I think one of the most worrying issues that we face stems from our, our own behavioral patterns. The ones that we have acquired with the mass consumption of fast fashion products are cheap enough to be thrown away without thinking twice about it. But at the end of the day, what is a way? You know, a way is not this magical place where mm. things go and disappear. A way is landfill, basically. So how do we address the waste caused by high street brands and help people truly associate their consumption patterns with the growing environmental and social issues that go along with them? Where is a way? I like that. It's, it's ethereal, esoteric, but I get that. I think that's a really important question. And increasingly, it's not even landfill because 
we are moving away from a system of landfill and developed countries because we can't afford to keep burying stuff in the ground. And we're now seeing that away means strange places like the deep bed of the ocean. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing microfibers, go, you know, go into the food chain and into um, animals and into our water and into our water. It's extremely worrying. I mean, away in Bangladesh, for example, um, we know that some of the brick factories around Dhaka are powered by waste clothing. Now, you might say, well, you know, shoveling waste into a furnace, burning it to make something else. That's just smart. But wouldn't it have been better to just use a, a, another product, another biomass product in the first place without having to dye, produce, um, you know, people risk their lives to make these clothes in order for them to be shoveled into a furnace. So a way, where is a way has never been more important. And as consumers, we need to really, really start thinking about that. I've now for, completely forgotten what the question was. <laughs> I think part of the problem is that a lot of us don't actually understand the true journey of a garment. Things mm -hmm. just appear in, in the store in front of us. We buy them cheaply we use them a few times and then we throw them away mm. not realizing that or we give them to charity thinking we're, we're doing a good deed not without realizing that actually that whole pattern from the beginning to the end has cost an in, a huge amount to mm -hmm. the environment mm -hmm. uh, and probably to the people making all those all those garments and we've actually not even kept that item of clothing or whatever it was in our life for more than a few months so how do we connect get people to reconnect with the true cost of all these things. Well, which is exactly what our documentary was about, yeah. you know, the, the, what is the true cost? Because we've forgotten, and it's hidden from us a lot. I mean, one of the things that we need to do is we need to stop thinking about ourselves entirely as consumers. Like for us, that is a big part of our lives, what we consume and when, mm. but that's not all we are. No. And we need to, and I love the, the activism movement, like activism this year. Yeah, it's been a really it's been hot, yeah. hot year for activism <laughs> in, a, in a sense that it's been legitimized. We have our first Nobel Prize winners who are activists and people are starting to realize all over the world that they can be more than just consumers or passive receivers of information, mm. which is often incorrect as we're finding out more and more and more. And that's very, very powerful. I think that some of this is on a psychological level, yeah. for sure. So consumerism, what does it add up to? And what are we, you know, in a sense, we are throwing ourselves out there, throwing ourselves to the lions because we are not built for that sort of consumerism. You know, you ask a lot of people who've studied, neurobiologists, for example, who've, who are starting to study particularly the way we consume fast fashion, what mm -hmm. happens to our brain when we go into a store or shop online. And we are programmed to appreciate small interventions, gifts from the gods, if you like, handfuls of nuts, <laughs> acorns, you know, something from the natural world. Like, I don't know that many people who get excited by acorns anymore. Conkers, maybe. I do see that still. <laughs> but, you know, these are the things that we can deal with, that we're hardwired to deal with. We have the facility. They yeah. give us the little hits that we need. But we're on this sort of boom or bust psychological roller coaster. So we're like, oh, my God, I need this. I need this. Yeah. I need this. And the the time spans in between consumption and the next hit of consumption yeah. are becoming contracted smaller and smaller. smaller and smaller and smaller. So really, one of the things that you can do is make them wider and wider and wider, which is why the idea of saving up for something that you love is actually not a bad idea. Yeah. When do you think the system really sped up this much? Yeah, well, we've always been, especially in the UK, we are sitting ducks for this sort of consumerism. It's been catalogued 
in the Victorian era. So even before that, when the spinning jenny was introduced and sped up the whole cycle of producing cotton, we find that there are articles from that period talking about how housemaids are suddenly buying more bonnets and people in absolute like the terror of this profligacy. So it's always been with us. But Zara Inditex owned by um, Mr. Ortega, they really broke the mould because they got the logistics absolutely spot on. And you can, I mean, I've lost count of the amount of business um, PhD theses which have used Inditex as their model. Um, I think we can remind people that he is, I think, the second richest man in the world. Something like that. Yeah, I always say, if you look, and and because the speed, so we now have like 52 collections a year rather than the spring, summer, autumn, winter, which is terribly quaint. I mean, who does that anymore? But the luxury industry is sped up too so yeah, you yeah. always you have like yacht wear and this and i was like who can afford who needs yacht wear and the it is cruise collections you mean the cruise collections <laughs> yacht yeah wear, I, love yeah, I that. call it yacht wear <laughs> the cruise collections i mean who needs those that, that's yeah, for that's for yacht? ortega surely because he's the only yeah. person who's, who's, who's got, got the, he's got a yacht yeah the rest of us are just buying it like idiots <laughs> so if we're going to look at our behavioral patterns and the way we consume can you give us maybe some tips to make our our own wardrobes more sustainable yeah so there's some really pragmatic ones so for example if you commit to extending the lifespan of every garment by nine months you will reduce its carbon burden by like 30 to 40 percent and that's from a cambridge university rap study from the beginning of this year and i think that's just a really good thing to do nine months nine months the same time as it it takes to gestate a human (laughs) i know come on it's not that long it's not that long. So what that means is that if you've got a summer or, or okay, so say say this jumper that I'm wearing now, I'm going to have to pack that away. Like I'm not going to throw this in the bin at the end of it of the winter. I'm going to have to pack it away with mothballs and in a vacuum sealed pack, and I'm going to have to store it somewhere. And I'm going to make that commitment because I'm going to need to use it next year. I'm also going to write it on a list so I don't forget that I have you it, it yeah. that I own it because that's the stage we're at. You know, we have to write this stuff down because we have a lot of stuff. So that's one of the things. And a really quick shorthand thing to do is when you are shopping online or in a bricks and mortar store, you cannot pick up anything that you can't commit to wearing 30 times. But you don't have to do it like every single day, every consecutive day. But, you know, and and I want you to do it longer. I want you to wear it for 300 times. But I'm just saying for that initial sighting. And the other thing that you really, really is a good idea uh, is to use quality. And you know this, okay, from being French, you know this. (laughs) You don't buy fruit and veg without seeing it or considering it you smell it touch it you know you want to know whether the melon's ripe the same with clothing i think i think you need to feel the quality of the fiber and you have to make sure it's a fiber that's going to work for you yeah, and i think it's it's okay to expect to spend a little bit more not like the extortionate prices that high fashion is making us pay but that's because they're making us pay for the marketing and and the yacht wear and all these other collections that they're producing so it's 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 a combination i think you don't of- want to pay for the marketing well, I mean, do we need to be... Spe- like, if you compare the prices of fast fashion and high fashion, they, the, the, mm. the gap is getting bigger and mm. bigger. Mm. And how does it, how can you explain to me that a T-shirt in Zara is being sold for £10, whereas one in a high, in a high fashion label is being sold for, like, £300? 
I, I don't, I, I, it doesn't make sense to me mm. that the gap is so wide. Even mm. if you've got like a, an enormous amount of creatives working on it, I think everything, mm. some, their prices should probably come down and fast fashion should probably come up a bit. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to take a step in, mm-hmm. in each other's direction, I think. Mm. There's been a couple of interesting small brands, which I now can't remember the name of, who are intent on showing the true cost of production, which yeah. I think is really interesting. Everlane is one. We were yeah. talking about them yeah. earlier in the episode. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, who showing on their website you know where everything has come from and Mm -hmm. how much it has cost and why the garment is priced the way it is so you Mm. actually understand as a consumer the margin that they're making you see i think that's really interesting because once we've got those sort of facts and figures it's a little bit like the equal pay debate you know once we know that women are being vastly underpaid then we can do something about it and i think it's in fashion what's really interesting i've been involved a lot in trying to secure a living wage for garment workers who still by and large millions of of young women around the world do not earn enough money to cover the cost of the calories that they need to work in in the factories. I mean, that's the reality of it, never mind anything else. What we're trying to do is look at this capital flow, which is all going to the fast fashion moguls and say, where can we intervene? And why can't we have some disgorgement of that money? Because that's the next thing so that we know it's going to the garment workers. And that's why you need transparency over pricing. Because we need to know about that money. And to end this on a more on a more positive note, do you think that we could also argue that for all its negative effects, fashion could also be part of the solution? You know, the people, the creative people at the very top, they're also the trendsetters. They're the ones that decide what's cool and what's not. Um, and do you think that they could be the ones sort of taking us to a more exciting future where we're consuming things in a different way? Yeah, I think there's some of that already happening. So I think that sustainability has had a massive makeover anyway if I look at something like the green carpet challenge which my friend Livia Firth and I set up and then she's now taking it to new heights I think if you look at some of the design and you know some of the way that they've worked with quite disruptive design forces and material people who make materials Mm. in a very disruptive way I think that's got a real energy about it I think modern meadows as I say by fabricating leather in laboratories Mm -hmm. I think that's an absolute game changer all of that stuff and that's very exciting and that is coming from cool people who are, I'm sorry to use the word again, disruptive. Yeah. But what we have at the moment is an amerta, this kind of silence over, we know that a lot of it, people are just jumping through sustainability hoops and pretending things yeah. are better than they are. And you know what? Those really kind of creative, disruptive, amazing people, of which there are many, many in all different parts of this industry, need to call it out. Yeah. And they need to say, we want to go deeper, more radical, even if it's scary and even if it upsets the status system. quo, because that's what we need to do. Yeah. We need we Change need that system. At the core. Absolutely comes back to core. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely does. But you know, there's a there's a whole massive shift that is going on and there's been quite a lot of examination within the fashion industry and I think linked to stuff like, you know, um when young designers are catapulted into these massive jobs with massive brands people feel sorry for them because they know within two or three years they're going to be you know stressed out it's no longer them calling the shots it's the people at the very top you know deciding what's being produced no longer the designer themselves yeah well there's something going on there so i think within that community there's a real impetus for change anyway and i don't think that sustainable change and some of the stuff that we're talking about the um, environmental economics is that 
far removed from the psychological steps of change that we need to make. I think everything is very, very interconnected. So what we are trying to do is to create a much more reasonable holistic system that looks after everybody in the supply chain. I don't know where, I don't care whether you are a top name designer or a garment worker. I will fight equally for all of you because you should have your human, emotional and environmental rights respected. This needs to become a respectful industry and it can happen. And, and that's exciting that that can happen. Yeah. And from our end as consumers also to just think about what we buy, when and how. Absolutely. Mindful consumerism is a real game changer. Reasonable consumerism. Reasonable. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a much more um, uh, appealing word at the moment. I think if you look at what unreasonable looks like in the form of a certain oranged face <laughs> leader... Ooh, we love to talk about Trump on this podcast. How do you know I was talking about Trump? Well, there's only one. <laughs> Orange is the new black. No, <laughs> there's only one. There's only one. But if you look at that as unreasonable, reasonable just suddenly seems really sexy, doesn't it? That's yeah, true. Thank you so much for chatting to us. We really appreciate all your advice and, and let's hope that fashion can be part of the change. Thank you. Thank you. It's all the more clear that the collateral of fast fashion is that 100,000 t-shirts mean the workers get nothing. The business model is cheap. Turnover and constant newness, mass consumption, constant consumption with things that are bad quality, poorly made, and take advantage of outdated labor laws that abuse populations in developing countries. You're basically making things practically for free because you're abusing everybody along the way. It's kind of inhuman. And the reason we do that is because we're uninformed. We're so far removed from the production chain that we don't understand the harm we're actually doing. Buy less for more money. Because in the end, you don't need 50 t-shirts. You only need five t-shirts. Why should things have to become so much cheaper in the first place? Monica? Yes? It's time for risk takers, I think. So instead of being negative and shooting down the bad guys, we have decided to play good cop here and shout out the brands and platforms doing a great job in the eco-innovation game. Which we hope might give some ideas to the young. And let's dare to dream also to more established brands as to how to improve their sustainability game. So the first brand that I wanted to give a gold star to is called Everlane. And it's quite a simple brand, lots of really nice basics, cashmere jumpers, all that sort of thing. And the reason why it's doing so well is because it has decided to be transparent at every level. So when you go onto the website to buy, say, a jacket you'll be able to know exactly why that jacket is priced the way it is. So, for instance, it will tell you how much the materials cost, the hardware, the labour itself, the duties, the transport, and all of that will add up to make the true cost of the garment, and then you will see the markup. So you'll understand what margin Everlane is making on your purchase, which I think is a really fair way to shop. I'm into that. Yeah, I'm into it too, and I think more brands could be getting into this. The other platform that I really wanted to suggest, because it really allows you to sort of think about where you're going to shop, is a new app called Not My Style that you can get on the App Store. And this app, I I think you might only be able to use it in, in England. We need to check that. But basically, it allows you to evaluate how bad a brand is in terms of the planet, in terms of like environmental costs. And it will give you a color code, red, orange and 
green, which is fairly obvious. Red are brands that you really should try and not to shop from. And green are the ones that you can sort of go into and shop without really thinking too much about it. And the way that it separates one from the others is all the brands that refuse to give any information about their sustainability policies, all the brands that don't give you that information on their website are regarded as doing a bad job. Bad. So... As with everything, I think everybody knows that no one is perfect. It's about holding your hands up and being transparent. And this is what we're trying to do as well, like making informed decisions when we shop. Were you quite surprised? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. To see which shops ended up in the red category. Yeah, actually, I was because you'd think that the big fast fashion brands are the worst, but actually, it doesn't seem that that's the case. They're the ones, a lot of the time, that are trying to make a lot of conscious efforts. And on the contrary, it's more smaller brands that sort of, I, I don't know, like go onto the app and play around with it. I don't want to be calling out any names. Yeah, you'll see. So go and have a play around, and you'll see. It, it's actually quite surprising. Being naked is the most sustainable option. Reformation is number two. That's the cheeky promise that you can find in store and on reformation.com, a trendy but eco-friendly label best known for its vintage-inspired little summer dresses and perfect party wear. Here's Monica on the line with Kathleen Talbot, Reformation's VP of Operations and Sustainability, to learn more about how you can expand into a mega brand whilst maintaining responsible environmental practices. Hi, Kathleen. It's Monica. Hi, Monica. Well, thank you for speaking to us so early in the morning for you. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem at all. So I'm just going to jump in. We're so excited to learn more about Reformation, which is known for its approach to sustainability, of course. And we were wondering if you could describe how the brand was born. Sure, of course. So, yeah, Ella Flalo is our CEO and founder, and she started the brand in 2009. Yeah, Ella had worked in the fashion industry for a decade, running her first brand, Yaya. And I think a combination of the recession and a sourcing trip to China really set her on a different course. So when she was in China, she saw the pollution of apparel manufacturing firsthand and was really, I think, 
overwhelmed by it. So she knew that she didn't want to be a part of the practices and the industry drivers that led to wildly polluted air and rivers. Um, and she started Reformation as a response to business as usual. Um, Great. It started, the brand, the brand started in a storefront here in LA. Um, and she actually was just retailing and reselling one of a kind vintage pieces, the kind of the ultimate recycling. We've obviously scaled up from that model, but I think this, this idea that it's our responsibility to help clean up and do things differently is really still the driving force behind Reformation. For sure. And so how do you explain the rip-roaring success of Reformation? Is it the direct consumer marketing strategy or the appeal of an accessible, on-trend yet sustainable brand or a combination? I think it is a combination. When Yael started the brand, um, most people actually told her not to market it as green or eco. Um, Because I think 10 years ago and still today, that has sort of excluded being fashionable or cool. Um, And I think what has helped Reformation success is doing it anyways and helping reinvent sustainable fashion and expanding the boundaries. Um, So I, I would say our marketing and our brand position is a big part of our success. It's somewhat surprising. It's authentic. It's honest. It's fun. It's irreverent. Um, and we really try to, to just be a friend to our consumer. Your Reformation's VP of Operations and Sustainability. What is your role on a daily basis? What does your work look like? Yeah, operations is a lovely catch-all. <laughs> so I run facilities, retail development, customer service, distribution center, really all the business operation functions that help the company do what it does day to day. But I'm also our head of sustainability. And that has been one of the main focuses of my team since I started. So our sustainability initiative shifts every year based on what opportunities are on the horizon and really what we want to tackle next. But right now we're really focused on creating robust standards um, for any of our manufacturing and materials partners, we're pursuing 100% traceability and doing a lot of our energies on on, on fabric innovation and, and better alternatives. So it's been a lot of fun and it does kind of cover everything that, that the business touches. So when a brand scales up as much as Reformation has, how exactly do you remain sustainable? Yeah, that's actually a really great question and something we've, we've obviously had to work through as the brand has grown and evolved. You know, we've, we've gone from functionally a vintage shop to having a full-fledged factory and clicks and bricks brand. So I think the core strategy is to address whatever stage you're in and the unique, you know, challenges uh, with, with the same founding ethos and really focus on how we manage the brand and our footprints and our impacts holistically. So that's meant after a few years that we started sourcing dead stock or excessive overorder fabrics um, so we could make our own styles instead of just selling vintage. And now we've layered that into to actually just creating new developed fabrics that have a fraction of the environmental impact compared to conventional cotton or polyester, some of the other things that you see in the market. And I think we have to, we've had to do the same thing with our, our manufacturing capacity. So we still have our own factory that produces the majority of our stuff. Um, but as we've scaled, we have to grow partners to help, basically, and, and processes to make sure that they meet our same sustainability standards. Right. So actually, just going a little further into that, I was reading your mission statement on your website, and I was wondering if you could help dissect some of the lingo for our listeners. So when you say, for example, responsible factory partners, sustainable fabrics, better practices throughout the supply chain, what what does that mean exactly? Maybe starting with responsible factory partners. Sure, of course. So responsible partners basically just has to check three main boxes. So they have to meet our material standards, 
which is like, it, just to really simplify it, it basically means that we don't have cotton, we don't use synthetics, and we have a focus right. on low-impact natural or recycled fibers. They also have to sign our, our code of conduct and participate in, in sort of auditing and, auditing and monitoring programs. So that's really focused primarily on the labor standards, like the social impact of what they do. And then they have to pass our chemical standards. So I think we kind of have created this guidebook. We said like these are sort of the do's and the don'ts. And we work really closely with those partners to make sure that we have the confidence that anything with our label is made um, in ways that meet those standards. And I think you, you also asked a question about sustainable fabrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those definitely include vintage and dead stock. Um, although that's a smaller part of our business as we've scaled up, but it, it also includes things like tensile or recycled cotton or lensing viscose. Again, things that are, that are renewable, things that are biodegradable, and that have a much smaller footprint than most fabrics used in the industry. That's great. And I was wondering if you could just talk me generally through the life cycle of a Reformation dress. Okay, of course. So it's, it starts with the fabric. Um, we actually have an internal tool that, that we use called RefScale, just basically like a simplified life cycle tool. So RefScale calculates the impact from field to fabric. So everything it takes to grow, the cotton, the trees, the flax, whatever it is with that base input. It also includes processing the fiber into a yarn and that yarn into a fabric and any dyeing or finishing required. So about 80% of the environmental impact of clothes happens in the fabric stage. That fabric is shipped to our factory in Los Angeles. Most of our knit fabrics are actually made locally, but our woven fabrics are made all over the world, mostly in India, China, Italy. So we calculate the transportation emissions of getting our materials to us in the U.S. Our design and product development team helps release about 20 styles a week. So they can turn a sketch into a product we ship to customers in as little as two weeks. And I think right now the average is about 42 days. So they're the ones just busy all the time in Los Angeles creating samples and final patterns. And right now about 60% of our styles are cut and sewn and finished in the Reformation factory. Okay. The rest are, are in partner factories in Los Angeles. Um, And we're just starting to test working with factories outside of the U.S. as well. Once that product is cut and sewn and assembled, um, the dress is packed and sent to our distribution center, which is actually in the same building as our factory. And I think the last part of the life cycle that I think is really important to call out is that, you know, it really does extend beyond our direct reach. and And it matters how our customers clean and care for our staff and what they do with it when they're done wearing it. Because we've reduced the impact of fabric and manufacturing and shipping of a rough dress, close to 80% of the impact of our stuff happens at this, this stage of the life cycle, which is pretty, pretty incredible. So we really encourage our customers to do things like hand wash or wash cold or line dry and definitely make sure that they're recycling or reusing their stuff when, when wearing it. I just wanted to ask you, uh, I've I read an interview with your founder in Refinery29 where she was quoted as having said, the future of fashion is fast. So how do you guys reconcile, quote unquote, fast fashion with sustainability and responsible fashion? Yeah, fast fashion is definitely a dirty word in mm. the sustainability space. Mm. And and I think when it describes cheap, disposable fashion, it is a big problem. Um, but speed can actually be a tool towards sustainability. And I think that's something that, you know, we've really embraced. And and I think 
hopefully can be an example of, of the right way to do fast fashion. So speed lets you respond directly to your customer um, and the performance of your style. So we basically get to run a sew-on-demand model and, and have little to no finished good waste. And when you sell through, that's not only just good business, but it also helps break this sort of persistent promotion and discount cycle which is really just brands trying to offload mistakes or mistakes in terms of of what they've created. And so I always think about those sales cycles as being actually pretty dangerous, right? Because they erode what the normal consumer thinks it actually costs, right? Instead of just seeing those things as mistakes. And so I think instead of throwing out the fast fashion model, we can really look for what we can learn from its successes and create an industry that is much faster more responsive, more efficient, and ultimately more relevant. And we found great success in doing that. Great. And just taking a step back, I would like to uh, ask you for some tips because you're an expert. So what would you say is the single biggest mistake that brands make vis-a-vis the planet? Wow, it's like a, it's a yeah. whopper right yeah. there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I know, no, it's good. I think, I think the biggest mistake brands make is is basically that they assume resources are limitless or that making clothes doesn't actually have anything to do with climate change or these other really pressing issues that affect the planet right now. So if you look at the industry as a whole, we're operating in a way that is that is literally unsustainable. Yeah. That is that we, we can't support what we're doing into the future. And so I think we need to make some fundamental shifts in, in how we make clothes and actually how we identify our role as brands in, in cleaning it up. So I know that's a little bit more abstract, but I think it, it is the no, biggest no. mistake is actually in how we even position ourselves into, into this conversation. Yeah, I mean, so if you were giving young designers, brands starting out, a few quick tips, is there anything else you'd want to add? Yeah, for sure. And I think this is something that I think is surprising to some some brands or designers because they think of sustainable fashion as being so hard, so expensive, um, so inaccessible. But mm-hmm. at least from our perspective and, and our experience, it's, it's been really easy <laughs> to go at least those first few miles and making your brand more eco. It's basically... It's basically just substituting something you do or buy now with something better. So if that's more sustainable fabrics, if it's 100% recycled paper versus the normal stuff or purchasing renewable energy versus, versus the normal grid, these shifts are, are not that much more expensive. And if they are, they actually help motivate you to use less. So I think as more brands and designers sign on and start doing some of these even incremental adjustments or substitutions, we'll start to see that these things also scale up um, and we'll create some economies of scale and they'll become less expensive, more accessible, and and again, more just sort of a new status quo. So I wouldn't be discouraged. I think particularly those those first few miles are are actually pretty easy in those those low-hanging fruit ways to, to make a difference. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for speaking to us. That gives us so much to think about. Of course. It was a pleasure, Monica. Thanks for including us as well. Hey, Cam, guess what time it is? What time is it? It's time for a social media break. Finally. So, guys, actually, instead of redirecting you back into the endless universe of Instagram this time... We want to suggest some further watching and listening 
if the topic is one you would like to learn more about. Absolutely. So as an introduction to the topic, there's obviously an inconvenient truth by Al Gore, which has been followed with an inconvenient sequel, which will keep you informed on the topic. Plus, uh, how could we miss out Livia Firth's wonderful documentary called The True Cost of Fashion? And while we were doing our research about this episode, we stumbled across a great podcast called Wardrobe Crisis, in which every episode goes into various topics like the war on plastic, the supply chain and digs really deep. It's fantastic. Plus, there's the film called The Age of Stupid, which, despite being 10 years old, is still super relevant and a great watch. We have our producer in the room because we've been working on a secret project that he doesn't know anything about and we're going to unveil it today. Go on, tell me a little bit about it. Monica? Okay, so, Andrew, uh-huh. in today's installment of Dress for Radio, we shall unveil to you... And to everybody else. The Fashion No Filter and Admis collaboration. So our friend Zoé Le Boucher, who owns this lovely little label called Admis Paris, which makes suits, let us take on the challenge to have our little green carpet for ourselves and we have designed a velvet suit that will be absolutely perfect for you to wear during the party season ahead. Uh, this is what I've dreamt of. I can't wait. It's going to look so good on you, Andrew. you're going to love it. What colour? It comes in four different colours so you can match it to your skin and hair tone. But wait, before you ask... Monica, Cami, how could you possibly promote a product when you're talking about sustainability this episode? Let us mention that part of the proceeds are going to PlasticOceans.org. Exactly. So basically, part of the reason this even came about is because we wanted to fully understand how the supply chain actually works. So we'd initially asked our friend Zoe to sit us down and to run us through um, the production chain, since it's quite a complicated process. And that's when she suggested that we should work on our own design. That would be the best way to sort of really come to grips with how a garment is made and see all the different stages. So that's what we've done. Yeah, and we went all the way down to the factories with Zoe. Thank you, Zoe. And carefully looked into what was on offer. Yeah, because we wanted to use dead stock. That's what they call fabric that's sort of come... And it can be any age? It was from any era? Yeah, so it's all stuff that has... It's all previous collections that sort of... Yeah, but it's not not that old. It's just discontinued for some reason. I mean, it would be thrown away. It's fan series, it's what they call in French. What do they do with that fabric if they don't use it? They burn it. They throw it away. Yeah, this is why it's also such an important thing to be wow. thinking about when you're designing collections because all the leftover fabrics are just burnt. It's the same thing with collections when they're not sold. Anyway, we have decided to provide you guys and you, Andrew, I can't wait. with a sustainable option for the party season. After all, isn't a velour suit the chicest possible thing you could wear to a party on New Year's Eve? Absolutely is. Exactly. It's a winter classic and hopefully it won't be something you'd just be wearing this season. We really try to design something super timeless, sustainable and something that's going to stand the test of time and of all your long nights. Now, you're just going to have to hold tight, Andrew, until the 1st of December when the Fashion No Filter for Admis Velour Smokings go on sale on the Admis Paris website. Also, once that happens, make haste because we only have enough material to make 100 suits. So hurry, hurry and order by the 10th of December to be sure to receive yours 
in time for New Year's Eve. And once again, just to be clear, part of the proceeds will be donated to PlasticOceans.org. This is not us making extra pocket money before Christmas. As we mentioned earlier, plastic is a big, huge, ugly, smelly problem. Yeah, here are some scary figures. More than 8 million tons of plastic are dumped in our oceans every year. So why don't we just, you know, stop using it? Well, modern humanity in general is addicted to plastic. Plastic is cheap and incredibly versatile, which makes it ideal for many applications. However, these same qualities have also resulted in it becoming a dramatic environmental issue. We as humans have developed a quote-unquote disposable lifestyle, and today around 50% of plastic is used once and then tossed away. The fashion industry, of course, is no exception to this abuse of plastic's versatility. Cami caught up with the founder of Parlay for the Ocean, Cyril Gooch, who explained the real dangers of single-use plastic and what designers can do to wean themselves off the plastic drug. I think we are in a phase where we finally, after years and years of campaigning, understand that plastic is a problem and that our planet is actually really in trouble. And we woke up from this dream that everything is okay, that the standards pretty much protect us. And now we are facing the need for redesign on all levels. And that's a complex job. It's really a big, 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 big task. And we cannot expect everyone right now to change. We can't. It's impossible. And we can't put the burden on the shoulders of the consumer and of the little brands. And I think everybody has to decide themselves what they're taking on. And I feel going for perfect is not the right approach at this point. Perfectionism at this point is the wrong approach. Because if we try to be perfect, if we try to solve it all at once, we will not make a single step. No, well, because you're basically at war with capitalism, which is impossible to win. Exactly, which I don't personally believe in. I think I'm pro-business end of the day. I believe that business is fast and once somebody succeeds and creates a new standard, others will follow. That's the beauty of it. And I feel that the small designer, as you mentioned it, should pick like very specific choices. While the brands have a bigger toolbox and can of course drive change in a bigger scale, I feel that everybody can contribute. Probably not on all levels, but everybody can pick one cause and one challenge, be it a small one, and just drive it. Yeah, it's what we're talking about just before we started this interview. Like We had this, this conversation about designers who, high-end designers who suddenly are using plastic on everything and and can plastic be a luxury item? Is that the solution? You know, making it expensive, making it something that you would save up for. But unfortunately, that's not going to work, is it? Because plastic isn't a, isn't a luxury item. It doesn't age well. It doesn't disappear. You're not going to want to pass it down. It's going to tear. It's going to go yellow. It's not going to look nice after six months of wear. And all in all, what all that's going to happen is the high street is going to copy the, the designers and uh, the high-end designers, and you're going to have plastic everywhere again. So maybe like smaller designers as tastemakers, their job is more to like steer away from that and try and come up with new ideas so that plastic isn't at the center of all our design ideas. Every designer and every member of the creative community has a very strong influence in trends and, and creating blueprints for others. So I think it's about being very careful what you communicate, what you stand for, what you endorse. And I think what people really understand now is that purpose is the new luxury. 
it's really about your intention at this point in, in a time where we cannot replace everything. It's more about your mindset. It's about what you, what you stand for. What values are you representing? And I think that is in the hand of everybody who creates something. And that can be a small designer, a big designer, any creator, anybody who is, is building something out there can actually send a very clear message. How do we switch off our plastic addiction? Can you give us some tips for us sort of to go home with in our everyday life, things that on an individual level are actually going to make a difference because, you know, not getting a plastic bag, etc. at your local shopping, is that going to make a change or is that just some big PR scheme? Because at the end of the day, that plastic bag is still being made. I mean, what are the solutions in everyday life to try and change this? I think the beauty of our times is that every voice counts. And the individual has so much impact. It can be this one action, this one sentence, this one moment that changes a full industry. And it starts with little items. It starts with a plastic straw. It starts with like refusing a plastic bag. It starts with like being annoying, annoying and demanding little and little nagging. Little acts of rebellion. Yes, exactly. And people will hear from all sides. And sometimes it only needs three voices yeah. coming from different directions to create a new reality, to show somebody that he has to change. One last thing before I let you go and explore this gigantic hotel hub. I don't know what it is. The Ned, I've never seen anything bigger in my life. Um, any new projects that you're working on? Something exciting that you want to share with us? Oh yeah, actually there is one. We're about to launch a new project. It's called Clean Waves. We are actually inviting top creators from different disciplines to islands. And... Together we explore the beauty, we go diving, surfing with them, we have talks by night, by day. But then also we go and, and confront ourselves with the horror, with the fragility really, and collect all that plastic there. Be it like fish lines, be it like bottles, be it like little debris that is in the sand or between the bushes. And the creators that we invite turn this trash into super high profile made in Italy uh, eyewear, sunglasses. So all profits of these sunglasses will contribute to a project that we call 100 Islands. And we do that together with Corona, actually. Um, we want to protect 100 Islands, like paradise, really. Islands are such a strong symbol of change for us. And they question this idea of a way. Because when we act, when we do, when we just live, then we feel that we can toss things away and they, they end somewhere. Yeah, what is a way? A way doesn't exist. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't exist. And um, by exploring a way, by exploring paradise, we see what impact we have on these places and that there is no, nothing on earth anymore that is protected from our doing. It's trashes everywhere. I mean, the, every remote island I visited, plastic was there first. There is a belt of trash around it. But on the other hand, paradise reminds me that this planet is worth fighting for. And therefore, Clean Waves, the project, is introducing the idea of rethinking plastic yeah, to the design-slash-fashion industry on a totally different level uh, in form of an eyewear, like in the form we see the sea. You need to be taking uh, students from St. Martin's there too, the new generation. There you go. Keep Thank on. you so much for chatting to us, and uh, I'll keep an eye out for my uh, new Waves invitation. <laughs> yes. I'm coming to the island. Bye-bye. <laughs> exactly. Bye. Thank you, Ciro. And we will all try to use less plastic in our day-to-day -day lives. Amen. Amen. 
As this is the last episode of the season, we thought we would take the opportunity on this segment of The Birds and the Bees in partnership with Bumble to say thank you to our wonderful sponsors for having trusted us and supported us throughout this amazing first season. Thank you. It's been wonderful to work with you and also watch you progress from a dating app to a multi-networking business platform. Nespa, Monica? It, I mean, it is wonderful on every level. By the way, boys, I mean, because obviously it's never going to be acceptable for you to hit on a woman in an elevator ever again, you should probably get on Bumble. Everybody get on Bumble now. No more flirting in real life. Everything is digital. <laughs> That's it. We're cooked. <laughs> and by the way, Monica, did we ever find out whether the guys of Pod Save America are on Bumble? <laughs> Crooked media. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you, I think they're all either married or not that way inclined. Oh. oh, well, what would the birds and the bees be without a little bit of casual flirting anyway? Hi. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much once again, Bumble, and we hope to work together again soon. Thank you. Uh, by the way, we just wanted to clarify something. No brands uh, whatsoever have paid for placement in this episode. It all comes straight from the heart. Well, in this episode, in this whole season. Except for our trusty sponsors, Bumble. Yeah, the only reason we're clearing that up is we've been having questions as to product placement in the series. And yeah, just to confirm, Bumble is our only sponsor. That said, if BMW are interested in any kind of product placement for next season, don't hesitate. Or I guess we should say Tesla in this context. In honour of this being the last episode of season one, we wanted to take you on a little journey back through our first eight episodes. When we conceived the idea uh, over lunch one Sunday, we couldn't have fathomed we'd be sitting on a couch with Susan Sarandon, eh, Monica? To the cast of the pod! You've been amazing! So now, a look back at some of season one's highlights. So yes, thank you to Susan Sarandon, not only for inspiring us with your words about activism, but also for reminding me what to do with my wedding dress. And to Leander Medine, a.k.a. the Man Repeller, for reminding me what not to do with my wedding dress. A huge thank you to Scott Schulman for literally squeezing with us in the most impressively composed interview I've ever heard from a man squished in the back of a cab. And Iris von Herpen and Victor and Rolf for allowing us to come and pester you in your ateliers minutes before your couture shows. To Laura Bailey and Caroline de Maigret for reminding us that there is so much more to a true muse than what she wears. And Margaret Sang, thank you for being our first ever guest and trusting us with your valuable time when we were very new on the scene. To Sarah Ziff, whose career we so admire and are watching go from strength to strength, having emerged as a true leader in the current climate of speaking up against injustices. And to Jade Parfit for giving us a taste of the heyday of supermodels. When Kate Moss was running around topless backstage with champagne, you know, how things used to be before it all got so corporate. To the brilliant Lizzie Payton from the New York Times, bringing some highbrow journalism to our little studio. And to Tommy Ton, king of street style for giving us a glimpse into how he really decides who will be the next street style queen bee. And to Geoffroy de la Bourdonnais, president of Chloe, thank you for allowing a true glimpse into the relationship between the corporate and creative side of fashion. Of course, there was also Roche Matani, designer of our favourite Alighieri jewellery. Thank you for your insights on how a successful young brand really works. 
and to Roxander for allowing us into your colourful world and letting us in on a few secrets as to how you built your business. Thank you also to Angus Monroe for letting me steal you after a big show the moment you're meant to be celebrating and relaxing backstage after all your hard work and letting me pick your brains for hours on the realities of the modeling industry. Thank you for your honesty, too. And to all the boys in our lives, too, for keeping us down to earth in what men really think of fashion. Real friends tell the truth, as Eleven would say. And to you, our listeners... Thank you for downloading, for indulging us in Vox Pops outside the shows, and for your constant feed of ideas and support. We love you. Au revoir. Au revoir. Merci. Merci. See you next year. See you in season two. Rethink Plastic. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.